Welcome, friends. You're watching Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian, joined by my fantastic co-host, Nando Vila. Nando, we have an awesome show ahead for everyone. I'm we really do. looking forward to your segment. <laughs> it's going to be you. so good. I'm looking good. forward to your segment. Yeah, We have Liz yeah. Brunig um, here from the mm-hmm. New York Times. Ever Not a big it? deal. No. Not a big deal. deal. Um yeah. I'm really looking forward to interviewing her. I've been wanting to, you know, interview her for a while now, and this is the perfect opportunity to do it. So she's going to come on to talk a little bit about uh, how awful Governor Andrew Cuomo is. Um, He's now embroiled in a giant scandal regarding um, the suppression of data regarding coronavirus deaths in nursing homes. So she's going to help us break that down and, um, you know, figure out what's going on, figure out what the hell is going on. And... uh, Texas is in a lot of trouble. Uh, capitalism yes. has got a lot to do with it. Deregulation has got a lot to do with it. Nando's going to yes. um, suss that out. And uh, I'm going to later also discuss uh, the, I was going to say potential downsides, but I'm just going to say the completely disastrous idea mm-hmm. of forming a 9-11 type commission in order to investigate uh, the riots that took place in the nation's capital on January 6th. But before we get to that, Nando... Ted Cruz. I know everyone's yes. talking about it. And I wanted to get your thoughts because Ted Cruz did what you would expect Ted Cruz to do. Abandon his constituents, abandon the state of Texas when it's in the middle of a terrible crisis uh, and vacation in Cancun. And then when he got caught, yeah. he just ran back home and pretended like all he was doing was trying to be a good father. He just, just dropping his yeah. kids off and then he was going to come right back. <laughs> just Yeah, it, it- it, it you know it reminded me of kind of like a, a throwback political scandal like it just like it feels like a very political scandal from back in the day when this kind of thing probably would have sank his career um you know like this is the kind of thing that that ended other careers i remember who was the governor that like disappeared for Mark a while Sanford? and went to yeah he went to like Appalachia? argentina or something yeah yeah, 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 <laughs> he, yeah he said yeah, he was yeah. on the appalachian trail appalachian but really trail. he was yeah, getting yeah, yeah. it in yeah yes. yeah <laughs> Like that ended, yeah. right? That ended his career, um, you know. And this, but obviously, like, I mean, the, the 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 it's a very funny scandal. Ted Cruz is like a very funny figure. He's disgusting and ridiculous and an absolute phony. Like, I just don't understand how anyone cannot see through like the fake pose as this like you know red meat conservative when he's clearly just like a fancy lad harvard guy um but mm-hmm. yeah it's just the, the the whole thing is very very funny to me although it is just kind of like indicative of a couple things one is like just how much these like how much these people in power just absolutely you know just not like no even concern for mm-hmm. the plight of regular people like it just doesn't even i'm sure he didn't even think about it you know he didn't it didn't even like cross his mind it wasn't like something that he was like oh i'm gonna have to do like surreptitiously or anything like that. Like he was just like that. No, it's fine. I can go. Like because he doesn't. It doesn't even enter his head. Um, it didn't register also, that what he was doing was like cruel and would, if, yeah. you know, if caught, would be seen as uh, abandoning his own constituents at a moment yeah. of crisis. Um, and you know, the thing that I, you know, you mentioned that if this had happened maybe years ago, it could sink his career. I think that there's still a possibility that he could suffer some political consequence because he made the mistake of apologizing. 
I guess, but remember, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't think he's ever going to be chosen as the Democrat. I mean, the Republican nominee. Like he's no. still planning to run in, you know, the next presidential election. I think that this will probably come back up to haunt him for for that purpose. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, but he he would have lost anyway for for other million reasons. Linda just said he just doesn't have it. You know, he just doesn't have what it takes to 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 really win the Republican nomination. But I, it's not going to like end his political career. Like he'll be senator. For, for as long as he wants to. I, I don't, you know what I mean? I don't think that that's going to, mm. that that's going to affect his career at all. I mean, I think even it's, what's going to happen actually is that it's going to, they're going to flip it, you know, and it's over time, it's going to, they're going to like, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this turned into some sort of fundraising gimmick, you know, like look at these horrible <laughs> libs, you know, like whatever, you know what I mean? Like that mm-hmm. it's, he's going to flip it back and everyone's going to fall in line because everyone's partisan. Um, and it just, it's going to get fed into the, into the, sort of meat grinder that is the culture war and come out on the other side like just you know disgusting ground meat you know what i mean it's like it's just i i yeah. i don't foresee this kind of thing affecting him really at all well i mean consider the fact that like congress is on recess right now they don't um, care they don't care. So Ted Cruz just happened to take it one step further by going on a beach vacation um, while his own constituents are suffering. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, maybe you're right. And honestly, from now till the next general election, um, it might feel like time flies by, but it's a lifetime in politics. And so much is going to happen politically from now till then that people will probably forget. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. he's just such a, a grimy and terrible person. And what he hasn't been able to learn, and I, I guess I'm kind of glad, um, is this very effective Trumpian strategy of never apologizing yeah. and immediately, like, immediately twisting it to blame others, right? Like, yeah. he, you know what Trump would have done. I went on a vacation. I worked very hard. I felt that I deserved it. And then the media, it's another witch hunt. It, that's exactly what he would do. People would forget about it. Let's move on with our lives. Um, yeah. There wouldn't be this epic dump, dunking contest that we're currently seeing with Ted Cruz. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. well, uh, what, what's up with Verso? What's going on in the book world? Verso has many, 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 many good books. Oh, my God. So many good books. And if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to four books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. As a special introductory offer, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month, and it's for ebooks only. The Conrad tier is $20 a month, and if you join in February, you'll get Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job by Gavin Miller. Tomorrow They Won't Dare to Murder Us, a novel by Joseph Andras and translated from French by Simon Lazare. The Rise and Decline of Patriarchal Systems, an Intersectional Political Economy by Nancy Fulber. Inequality and the Labyrinths of Democracy by Goran Terborn. Yeah. Those look great. Lots Never of really, yeah, they do. They do. They do look, they look amazing. And, um, you know, if you support Verso, you support Jacobin, um, and you support, uh, the ideas that we're trying to get out there into the world. So definitely check them out. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, let's do a little bit of a history lesson here, yeah. uh, because Trip down memory lane. Yeah. Nando, it's amazing. And I know this is something that frustrates you. Um, 
It seems like Americans have completely forgotten how disastrous Bush-era politics were. And now it's gotten to a point that people in Congress who experienced it in real time are advocating for similar actions in the Biden administration. So I I wanted to make my case about that. All right. So immediately after the Senate voted to acquit Donald Trump uh, for inciting an insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th, Americans heard this bipartisan chorus of lawmakers who are demanding what's being referred to as a 9-11 style commission in order to investigate the events of that day. And here's what that chorus sounds like. There was a pre-planned element to this attack, Um, um, Mr. Wallace, that we need to look at. Did Nancy Pelosi Pelosi know on January the 5th that there was a threat to the Capitol? What did President Trump do after the attack? We need a 9-11 commission to find out what happened, to make sure it never happens again. I think there should be a complete investigation about what happened on 1-6. Both why was there not more uh, law enforcement, National Guard already mobilized, what was known, who knew it, and when they knew it, all that, because that builds the basis so this never happens again in the future. I think that is also important, George, but that is different from allowing that to define the future of the Republican Party. Senator Coons, you just heard Congresswoman Dean right there on the necessity of a 9-11 commission. you agree? I do. George, this was a remarkable week, a powerful week. And I think the House managers, obviously Congresswoman Dean and Congressman Raskin and a very talented team, put on an incredibly compelling and powerful case. But there's still more evidence that the American people need and deserve to hear. Now, uh, Following all of these statements, uh, you can expect the corporate media to just simply regurgitate this call for a 9-11 type commission. Opinion peddlers talk about the absolute necessity uh, in order to prevent domestic terror attacks in the future. And naturally, everyone who seems to support the idea of a 9-11 type commission uh, in order to do this investigation seems to have their own interpretation of what it means. What will this commission investigate? What will it look into. And Democrats, by the way, seem to think that this commission will carry out the justice uh, against Donald Trump that they were unable to get through the Senate impeachment trial because of the fact that he was acquitted. Um, Some, like Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell, are under the impression that the commission will help investigate and root out white supremacy in the United States. I do think that we have to take a approach that we took after September 11 and and root out uh, white nationalism, uh, terrorism from our country. I I do believe we need a September 11 style commission. Take it outside of Congress. I don't want this in Congress, frankly. I think it should be an independent commission uh, appointed outside of Congress from scholars, experts, statespersons who can tell us, you know, what what happened and how we can defeat it. And you know that this is already becoming incredibly political in nature and nothing more than a vehicle for more political and partisan campaigning when you hear from the GOP and what they believe that this commission um, should be used for. Uh, it also provides them an opportunity or 
provides cover for the fact that they refuse to hold Trump accountable. It gives them the opportunity to signal to the country that while they were willing to acquit Donald Trump, they took the attacks on January 6th very seriously, and they want a full-blown investigation to figure out what's going on. Um, In fact, uh, former Indiana Governor Tim Romer, who served on the original 9-11 commission, um, brought up Senator Mitch McConnell's Senate floor speech uh, immediately following his vote to acquit Donald Trump. And he believes that, hey, you know what? Even though he acquitted Trump, it's not a big deal. Mitch McConnell clearly, based on that speech, takes this situation very seriously. Here's Tim Romer's uh, specific quote where he says, Senator McConnell's floor speech the other day certainly leads people to believe that he shares the frustration with the spread of these conspiracy theories and has deep concern about the need to strengthen the role of Congress as an institution and critical democratic participant moving forward. And I want you to really think about those words and how there is going to be a concerted effort to solidify power and expand power, not just among congressional lawmakers, but more importantly, the surveillance state. And whenever you hear anything about modeling policy or modeling investigations um, based on what we did after 9-11, you should worry because all we really did was expand the surveillance state, expand the security state and infringe on the civil liberties of Americans. And I really want to make that case in this segment. So much like the aftermath of the, uh, after the uh, 9-11 attack, politics, fear, and emotion are really driving uh, this rush to pursue a new investigation, a new commission, based on the discussions surrounding how this commission will form um, and what it exactly will entail. It's evident that it'll be costly, and ineffective at best, but damaging or even disastrous for our civil liberties at worst. For instance, just listen to the language that was used by Representative Swalwell later on in that same interview. Um, speaking of, of investigating white supremacy and white nationalism, um, do you think the intelligence community should, should make a shift towards focusing more on that after everything we've seen rather than focusing on uh, international terrorism? Is domestic terrorism something that, that really needs to be taken seriously given what we saw on January 6th? They're going to have to do both, uh, and, and they're going to need, I believe, at the Department of Justice, you know, a white nationalism a task force to make sure that they are understanding at the earliest of ages how people are being radicalized if there are in fact training camps and in our evidence we found uh, that the oath keepers uh, a group uh, in particular that they do have like training camps and an initiation process very much like international terrorist groups Oh, that's great. That means more surveillance. That means the formation of another intelligence community, as if we don't already have several. And it's not as if we don't already have intelligence agencies who are focusing on the issue regarding radicalization in this country, specifically right-wing radicalization. This was something that FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, had even testified about years ago, back in 2019. Listen. Just in the first three quarters of this year, uh, we've had more domestic terrorism arrests than the prior year. I will say that a uh, majority of the um, domestic terrorism uh, cases that we've investigated uh, are motivated by some version of 
what you might call white supremacist violence, but it includes other things as well. So clearly we have government officials, we have members of the intelligence community who are doing exactly what this so-called 9-11 type commission would do in investigating uh, what took place in the nation's capital on January 6th. Why do we need to add more bureaucracy, more surveillance, um, and more funding and resources towards something that is just going to be a duplicate of what's already been done? And really the concern is that this will expand surveillance and uh, much like 9-11, use the uh, fear-mongering tactics regarding terrorism in order to sell expanded ter- uh, surveillance to the American people. And to be clear, Americans have been indiscriminate Discriminately spied on um, and tracked by intelligence agencies uh, since, well, about 1945. However, there was a little gap when uh, there there were uh, some privacy protections for Americans. Uh, This previously came to a head back in 1975 uh, when the Church Commission responded to recently revealed revelations of a domestic spying network and served to curtail the security state's power through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, also known as FISA. Now, FISA was later um, a, a, a regulation that was violated by the NSA under the Bush administration. And uh, it was certainly an issue that was uh, basically provided, the uh, 9-11 Commission basically provided cover for through their own uh, findings and their own investigation. So a quarter of a century later, 9-11 became the excuse for an unprecedented um, increase and expansion of the surveillance state. And that's likely what we would get through the recommendations of another 9-11 type commission that would give their recommendations following their investigation of what happened in the Capitol. So far, the general public knows very little about the nuts and bolts of what this commission would entail, but there are already some signs that this effort is quickly shaping up to be similar to the commission that preceded it. So Tim Romer, the uh, former Indiana governor that I cited earlier, uh, does not want this investigation to be narrow in scope. So for anyone who's under the assumption that this commission is just going to hone in on what happened on that specific day, Understand that there is a growing call for a broader investigation that looks into uh, how these right-wingers uh, get radicalized. It's the same language that was used uh, regarding Muslim radicalization. And what ended up happening is intelligence communities uh, started spying in on Muslim students who were doing absolutely nothing wrong. All sorts of privacy violations uh, occurred, and it was incredibly invasive. So again, to call back on those types of surveillance methods that resorted from an insane investigation that was too broad, um, I think is a really bad idea. So uh, the Tim Romer, by the way, said this. He suggests a broad scope looking not only at the January 6th attacks, but, quote, how we try to ensure the peaceful transition of power. What do we do to make sure that conspiracy theories and lies don't permeate our democratic system of information getting to people? And how we take bipartisan steps forward to strengthen our democratic institutions. And he goes on to give a pretty lengthy list of what else should come of this uh, 9-11 
type commission saying what were the roles of social media, of disinformation campaigns and conspiracy theories leading up to it, planning it, sharing it, and inspiring people to be involved. A commission needs to look at the role of white supremacist organizations, their growth, their spread, their utilization of social media and the internet. How did they become part of this effort? How did they get such a foothold? Now, Representative Jim Clyburn wants this commission not only to be broad in scope, but he wants it to be exactly like the old one. When we talk about a 9-11 type commission, let's make it uh, the replica of 9-11. Let's make it a replica of 9-11. And when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked how this upcoming commission will be different from the 9-11 commission, um, she didn't talk about, you know, maybe doing something to hinder invasive surveillance uh, recommendations or anything like that. Uh, What she did focus on was the diversity of those who end up sitting on this uh, panel or this commission. (laughs) She says it'll be different from 9-11. What were there? Nine people, all white, one woman? It will look different. Oh, okay, great. So as long as the group of people uh, calling for more surveillance on Americans is a diverse group, then I'm sure it'll be okay. You know, we, we'll, we'll be fine under that scenario. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it should worry Americans that Nancy Pelosi's mind is um, dead set on modeling this after the previous commission. Um It's not because it wasn't diverse enough. The problem was that it existed in the first place and it recommended for more, recommended more surveillance. The 9-11 commission um, served as an example of how ruthlessly a tragedy could be used as a political weapon to erode American civil liberties. What the 9-11 commission really did was provide a rationale for the invasive and illegal government spying that was already taking place years prior to the release of their report in 2004. In fact, in 2001, uh, right after the 9-11 attacks happened, the National Security Agency, NSA, under the leadership of Michael Hayden, was already conducting illegal wiretaps on American citizens with the help of Bush and Cheney. So in other words, that FISA law that I was referring to earlier was the very law, the very regulation um, that was meant to protect Americans' privacy However, that law was violated uh, by Bush and Cheney and certainly the NSA, which wanted to bypass the FISA courts, uh, refu- you know, basically pre- pre- preventing themselves from having to get a warrant before they start spying on Americans. Um, so James uh, Bamford writes about this in his book, Shadow Factory. And I want to give you a few excerpts that clearly lay out how problematic this was. The NSA would have to get a FISA warrant to begin targeting Americans, a process NSA Director Michael Hayden claimed was slow and cumbersome. Instead, he told the president he wanted authority to secretly bypass the court and begin monitoring all of the target's international communications immediately, in other words, in hot pursuit. The standards for what represented a rationale or reasonable intrusion into Americans' privacy had changed, Hayden said, as smoke billowed from two American cities and a Pennsylvania um, farm field. So 
Bamford continues to write that Hayden's real problem today, uh, meaning back then when this was happening, was not so much velocity, speed, as it was volume. He wanted to be able to target thousands of people simultaneously, some briefly and some long-term, without the hassle of justifying them to anyone higher than an anonymous shift supervisor. Now, there was certainly some uh, backlash when this illegal wiretapping was taking place. However, what the 9-11 Commission provided in their 2004 report was justification, was a rationale for this type of government spying, even though the spying was illegal. Uh, in fact, based on the ACLU's criticism towards some of the recommendations coming from the 9-11 Commission at the time, um, the commission only served to provide cover and justification. Here's what they wrote. The 9-11 Commission's most sweeping proposed solution is a powerful National Intelligence Director, NID, and a National Counterterrorism Center, NCTC, that would centralize power over both foreign and domestic intelligence connection, uh, collection agencies in the White House. Remember, Hayden reached out to Bush and Cheney in order to bypass the FISA courts. And they gave him the ability to do that. They gave him the green light to do the illegal wiretaps. What this 9-11 commission recommended years later was that this is the way it should be. The intelligence community should be able to, uh, you know, get the green light from the White House, which, of course, is incredibly problematic. But let me give you more. The way in which the recommendation centralizes power over both foreign and domestic surveillance in the White House raises serious civil liberties concerns. Putting domestic national security surveillance in the hands of a top spy at the White House rather than a top cop at the Justice Department raises real risks of making sensitive domestic national security investigations a servant of the president's political or ideological goals. As outlined, the 9-11 Commission's recommendations would put too much power in a White House official with access to the agencies of government that spy on Americans. And unfortunately, the ACLU's fears did come to fruition, and they laid out um, exactly how the 9-11 Commission's recommendations would uh, lead to increased and unnecessary spying on innocent Americans. They write that as proposed by the commission, the national... The National Intelligence Director's powers would include the power under the U.S. Patriot Act to set requirements for FBI wiretaps and other intelligence surveillance within the United States. Again, this means that one person, the top guy who's in the White House or works uh, within the executive branch, would be able to give the green light um, for certain surveillance under the recommendations of uh, this 9-11 commission. Now, former Indiana Governor Tim Romer did uh, brag about how all of these recommendations or most of these recommendations were implemented. And remember, he sat on that commission. Recently, he told Politico this, out of our 41 recommendations, I believe 39 and a half were passed into law. I believe that is unprecedented in these commissions' histories. 
In fact, uh, in 2011, the 9-11 Commission complained that, you know, a few of their surveillance measures had not actually been implemented yet. Uh, They wrote that the government has failed to put into action a broader screening process using biometric technology that checks individuals as they leave the United States and has yet to establish a standardized form of identification, the report says. In addition, terrorist detention guidelines remain unclear. So they were worried about that. Like, hey, the Americans traveling to and fro, we got to make sure they're good. Are we, are we using this biometric data? And come on, we already know how invasive this surveillance is, has been. Um, traveling has become a complete and utter nightmare as a result of ineffective, by the way, expanded surveillance. And uh, apparently the commission was also concerned that uh, the government had not implemented or created a civil liberties board which, by the way, never came to fruition. So I guess when Romer's talking about the uh, half recommendation that was never implemented, he's probably referring to the Civil Liberties Board. Now, when it comes to building support for this upcoming commission, I want you guys to pay close attention to certain tactics and strategies uh, that I can already see um, playing out. So in order to drum up public support, what we're going to hear from the media and from members of Congress is this notion that it's going to be this wonderful, independent, bipartisan group of individuals. They're not going to be democratically chosen in any way. They will be appointed by our members of Congress. And there's this idea that, you know, They're going to make sure that this is not going to be political in nature or partisan in nature. It's just going to be a fair investigation. Here's what that looks like. Speaker Pelosi says there's going to be a, a quote, outside independent 9-11 type commission uh, to investigate what led to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Of course, there must be a full uh, commission, an impartial commission. Let's have some independent studies of exactly Mm. what went on not just on January 6th, but what led up to that? In reality, uh, this upcoming commission uh, will be partisan in nature. It, I mean, it will have an equal number of Democrats, equal number of Republicans, and it will be used as nothing more than a tool for politics, really. Is it going to uh, resort in anything useful? No. Uh, Are the proposals for this commission um, in any way unique to what the government is already doing in investigating um, white supremacy or terrorist groups in this country? No. What it will be used for is whatever both political parties choose to use it for. They will use it for their political messaging. There's no question about that. And we saw the same thing um, play out when it came to the actual 9-11 commission. We heard the calls uh, for an independent body, uh, a party that uh, has an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, and this idea that um, as a result of that makeup, they will be fair and the outcome of their recommendations will be unbiased. Uh, But I do want you to check out what Mel Goodman, uh, who was a fellow at the Center for uh, International Policy, uh, had to say about that at the time. He was pretty critical of this commission. Here's what he had to say. What this country needed was an independent, nonpartisan commission. The commission wasn't nonpartisan. It was presented to us as bipartisan. Well, when you appoint a group of people, five Democrats and five Republicans, that is certainly not nonpartisan. 
And I would argue it isn't even bipartisan. What it is is balanced partisanship. And you look, can look at the Commission's report time and time again to see where the Democrats on the Commission check the views of the Republicans and the Republicans on the Commission check the views of the Democrats. So forget this notion that this was somehow a bipartisan uh, Commission. It wasn't. It was balanced partisanship, and it did a great deal of harm to the final product. And, you know, that critique uh, was something that was repeated by others, including Benjamin DeMont over at Harper's Magazine, who wrote, in the course of blaming everybody a little, the commission blames nobody, blurs the reasons for the actions and hesitations of successive administrations, masks choices that fearlessly defined might actually have vitalized our public political discourse. So make no mistake, the only thing that's likely to come from this January 6th commission is the reinforcement or justification of current surveillance and possibly suggestions for more of it. It will be used as a vehicle for political posturing by both parties, and it will suck up resources at a time when Americans are told that the government can't cancel their student loans or provide robust economic relief uh, during this pandemic, when so many people, tens of millions have lost their income and, of course, uh, the health care that comes along with their jobs. Uh, so to focus on this right now, I think, is a pretty horrendous thing to do. Um, and to put any resources behind it is also awful. Uh, the commission had a total of 80 employees. Uh, it cost millions, tens of millions of dollars. Um, and that might not seem like a lot of money right now, but if the focus is on pumping resources toward this commission as opposed to dealing with the actual crises that Americans are dealing with day to day, it's going to show us where the government's priorities are. We're already spending most of our resources on the military and the uh, security state. It's about time we push back. And by the way, stop whitewashing uh, and laundering the Bush era and the awful policies that resulted from this 9-11 commission. Yeah, love to take a trip down memory lane and think about all the war criminals in the Bush administration and just how absolutely crazy that time was. I mean, Anna, you, we're not going to date ourselves, but you and I are old enough, unlike some people on this show, to remember the Bush <laughs> era. Um, you know, yep. 2002, that was like, it was just absolutely insane. Like when people think like, yeah, the Trump era, like he's a total fascist or whatever. And it's like, you... Yes, but like, think about what was in the Bush administration, like night and day, not even close. Awful. We're like the entire because it wasn't just uh, the 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 White House; it was like every structure of American power was on board, including mm -hmm. the liberal media at the time. There was very very little pushback to all of this stuff, um, especially before the Iraq War kind of quote unquote turned bad. Um, I what I what I despair over, you know seeing all this stuff about the you know this new version of a 9/11 commission is that the liberal impulse the sort of democratic party slash liberal impulse is to look at all the abuses of the bush administration in the wake of 9/11 you know extraordinary rendition uh People in Guantanamo who are most certainly Torture. innocent. The, the, the mere presence of Guantanamo Bay in, in and of itself. Um, the entrapment of young Muslims by the FBI, encouraging them to, quote unquote, become terrorists. Um, it's it just like they see all that 
And they're like, that's racist. We should extend it to white people, you know, instead of oh my seeing all that and, redu- and, 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 and reducing it, you know, like, no, no, no. It's like, you know, oh, white people never get called terrorists. And it's like, yes, that's true. But the the flips the the, the solution is not to like, expand that web to mm-hmm. include poor white people. No, no, no. It's the it should be the complete opposite. It should be we should we should be reducing it. We should not be doing it to we should not be entrapping the FBI should not be entrapping Muslims. You know, um, and yeah, go ahead. No, I you make such a good point. And honestly, um, the, if you want to see how the like. In my opinion, the way that the discourse has devolved further since the Bush era is that back then there had to be this overwhelming effort to justify surveilling American citizens, right? When it came to surveillance of foreigners, when it came to unbelievably cruel, brutal uh, treatment of Muslims, whether they're in the United States or abroad, that's okay. At least it's not American citizens, right? Yeah. The conversation has devolved further because now the cheerleading is focusing on spying on American citizens. And yes, the focus right now um, happens to be on white supremacy, but make no mistake, or white people, but make no mistake, much like the aftermath of 9-11, we were all indiscriminately spied on. Um, Data was collected on on us uh, by the NSA. That was what Edward Snowden, of course, leaked um, uh, back, I believe, in 2012. And so all of us become uh, victimized. All of us end up paying the consequences uh, of of the actions uh, by Trump, by his cronies, uh, by his cheerleaders, whatever it is. And then the, the biggest irony, and I'll, I'll end on this, is the Boogaloo Boys and all these like anti-government militias. You happy? Like, are you happy, you morons? Like, of course, it's going to lead to more surveillance, more government power. And they provided um, content, material for our government to use in their fear-mongering to drum up support for this. So it congratulations. Almost, you guys are fantastic. You're doing a great job. Yeah, I mean, the conspiracy theories write themselves, right, that the Boogaloo Boys are actually an inside job or something. You know, I mean, <laughs> if, if you watch, the, if you watch the, the, the Fred Hampton movie that just came out, the uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, this is like a perfect example. There's a, there's a very good scene in which the FBI agent, the guy Jesse Plemons' character, is talking to the Lakeith Stanfield character, who is the guy who betrayed uh, Fred Hampton, and he was like, "Hey, man, like, listen, I I took down the KKK. Like, I was the I was like an FBI agent, kind of raiding the KKK. And then obviously, what he does is then turn around and you, you know, like, he sees himself as like the brave defender against this kind of like white extremism. But then he goes around and turns around and 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 destroys the Black Panther Party. I mean, like, what's going to happen is the same exact thing. Like, they're going to go after you know the Boogaloo Boys or whatever, um, and that that they're going to they're definitely going to go after those people a hundred percent. But they're also going to turn around and go after the left. I mean, that's just the, what's the, yeah. what these totally. things are always designed to do. Really, is like they're going to go after um, left. They're going to call you know, I don't know, whatever some some union campaign like extremists who are looking to subvert uh, you know the American system or whatever. Um, and that's just that's just the reality of what's going to happen. So um, yeah, that's that's the problem yeah, no, with the you're, liberal you're impulse. So, you're so right about that. Um, and and don't don't underestimate the the intimidation that comes along with knowing that the government is collecting all of this data on you or, or co- collecting you know your browsing habits all of that mm-hmm. i mean 
if you know that stirring the pot could lead to the government leaking embarrassing things about you, are you willing to be a vociferous activist for whatever cause you believe in? Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's a, it's a form of intimidation as well. And it's just disastrous. And to see people like, like Keith Olbermann was like one of the biggest Bush era critics. And now he's like on Twitter. He's like, we must have a commission. And it's like, what, what, what happened to you? Like, it's because these people, Anna, these people are like, you know, we, we make fun of the, the conservatives for being like, you know, disgustingly partisan and just like defending whatever, you know, their, their guy does. But it's the the liberals do the same exact thing. I mean, they do the same exact thing. It's just like when it's, when the other people, when it's just directed at the other team, we've sorted ourselves into the teams and anything that, you know, hits the other team is good, justified, whatever. Like there is no principles. There is no, there is no kind of first order principles that we all adhere to or, or we stick to depend no matter who uh, is the person violating those things. Like we're just, it's just, you know, a, a dodgeball match and we're all just separated on different, we're just throwing dodgeballs uh, at each other. It's very Well, I mean, the Democrats have become very, very principled on um, fighting back against deficit spending. So that's yes. the one thing that they're, they're like genuine on. That. Yes, but yeah, I, I agree with there. you. Yeah. And, and, just to like wrap this up real quick, this is not to minimize what happened in the Capitol. As I've said, like there, we already have the tools to do what's necessary in response to that. Adding more government bureaucracy that will only expand surveillance um, is a bad idea. That's yeah. that's the whole thesis no. there. Absolutely. But anyway, let's let's talk about Texas uh, so yes. I can take a load off and enjoy myself. <laughs> Everything is bigger in Texas, they say, right? Texas is the largest state in the continental United States. And on its own, it would be the 10th largest economy in the world. And this week, as freezing temperatures swept across the friendly state, the power grid failed, leaving millions and forced to deal with the cold without electricity. Guys, um, so this is my house. I don't know what to do. Oh. Ah! Day four of the U.S. winter weather crisis, and things only seem to be getting worse, especially in Texas, where as of Thursday afternoon, a half million people are still without power and heat as electricity companies fail to deal with rare sub-zero temperatures. As of last night, the number of deaths attributed to the blackout stood at 58. I'm sure it'll get higher. So... Why did this happen? How did the infrastructure of one of the richest states in America fail so badly? Well, the answer, my friends, is clearly... So it was all working great until the day it got cold outside. The windmills failed like the silly fashion accessories they are, and people in Texas died. No, Tucker, no, 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 no. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the windmills. The power grid in Texas actually failed due to a little thing we like to call free market capitalism. You see, Texas has its own electrical grid, one that is completely cut off from the other grids in the United States. Most of Texas is on its own energy grid run by the organization called the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT. And it is disconnected from the two main power grids in the rest of the country, the eastern and western interconnects. And it is the most deregulated energy market in the country. That's right. Texas refused to join up with the other grids because keeping their grid within their state border allowed them to avoid federal federal regulations on the grid. I mean, you just got to love our stupid, stupid federalist system. But this freedom to avoid regulation allowed Texas to pursue a more market 
oriented energy system. Here's the Washington Post. Quote, what has sent Texas reeling is not an engineering problem, nor is it the frozen wind turbines blamed by prominent Republicans. It is a financial structure for power generation that offers no incentives to power plant operators to prepare for winter. In the name of deregulation and free markets, critics say, of which I am one, Texas has created an electric grid that puts an emphasis on cheap prices over reliable service. It's a, quote, Wild West market design based only on short-run prices, said Matt Braidert, a portfolio manager at a firm called Ecofin. You see, for-profit corporations operating in a free market care about one thing and one thing only, and that is profits. That's it. Profits. Literally nothing else. Which is why it's a very, very bad idea to leave the things that everybody needs to the free market. You know, things like education, healthcare, housing, water, and ding, 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 you guessed it, electricity so you don't freeze to death in the winter. Now, people are calling what happened in Texas a failure, but not according to the Harvard guy who designed the system. No, to him, the system worked as it was intended to. That guy's name is William Hogan, and according to the New York Times, he is the architect of the strategy the state adopted seven years ago. Quote, Mr. Hogan, a professor of global energy policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, acknowledged that while many Texans have struggled this week without heat and electricity, the state's energy market has functioned as it was designed. That design relies on basic economics. When, eco when electricity demand increases, so too does the price for power. The higher prices force consumers to reduce energy used to prevent cascading failures of power plants that could leave the entire state in the dark while encouraging power plants to generate more electricity. It's not convenient, Professor Hogan said. It's not nice. It's necessary. Yeah, Mr. Harvard guy. It's not nice or convenient that some people in Texas have been slapped with a $10,000 electricity bill even while the state froze. And it's certainly not nice that due to your stupid basic economics, people had to die. In Houston, a woman and an eight-year-old girl dying of carbon monoxide poisoning after a car was left running in a garage to help generate heat. Now, the guy at the center of this whole debacle has been someone named Bill Magnus. He's the CEO of a thing called the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, and they're the organization that operates the Texas grid. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has put the blame for these outages squarely on, on you guys. You're on the hot seat right now, obviously. So let's just take a listen for a moment to what he told our affiliate, KTRK, this morning. So ERCOT stands for Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And they showed that they were not reliable. These are experts. These are engineers uh, in, in the power industry. Uh, these aren't bureaucrats or whatever the case may be. These are specialists. Uh, and government has to rely upon these specialists to be able to deliver in these types of situations. So he went on to call for your resignation, the resignation of ERCOT leaders. I'd like to get your response to that and also your response to, to what people are saying, that maybe Texas is too deregulated, that, that other states uh, operate uh, natural gas and wind in cold weather, and they outfit them by regulation so that they can survive that. First, Abbott. Second, maybe you guys are doing it wrong. Okay. Uh, first, you know, as I was saying, the focus, the total focus of our team now, from me to our grid operators to everyone else, is to get the power back on. Um, there's going to be a lot of investigation and analysis of this event, which obviously had huge impacts on Texas. 
Uh, and it, it needs to be looked at. All of the decisions we made need to be looked at. So let's look at those decisions and all those decisions you made. Here is that same guy, Bill Magnus, just over a month ago on, I shit you not, a podcast called Grid Talk, a podcast about electrical grids, explaining the beauty of his market-based grid. You know, being clear about what it is you want out of your electric system. And I think this is where some of my counterparts in other parts of the country have challenges is, you know, in the ERCOT market, the market was restructured and uh, our objective is to provide reliable, least cost power to the citizens of Texas and, and in, in 75% of the state in a competitive retail market. That's been the central driving force behind what we do. A competitive retail market. That's the central driving force behind what they do. Remember, this is the market that is now charging consumers as much as $10,000 in, in electricity bills. But wait, what happens when you have a market structure? So having a market structure that can have very uh, bracing outcomes, <laughs> uh, but also very profitable outcomes uh, for those who are there and you know, providing service on those times when we have scarcity pricing and prices go quite high. Uh, you know, that can be a really good day. So there you have it. Market structures can produce something called bracing outcomes. Maybe like, I don't know, millions of people losing power during record low temperatures. But a market structure can also have very profitable outcomes for those who are there to provide electricity when they have scarcity pricing, such as, and I can't believe that this is true, Texas cartoon villain Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, According to a report in Newsweek, the winter freeze that has gripped Texas and other central U.S. states for the best part of the week, leaving millions without power, has resulted in a financial bonanza for the company of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, who has profited from soaring demand for gas. Comstock Resources Chief Financial Officer Roland Burns acknowledged that the company had hit the jackpot as it sold gas from its Haynesville Shale Wells in East Texas on the spot market for a price between $15 and $179 per cubic feet. The story continues, This week is like hitting the jackpot with some of these incredible prices, Burns said during an earnings call on Wednesday. Frankly, we were able to sell at super premium prices for a material amount of production. The company reported fourth quarter revenue of $274.8 million, which was also ahead of Wall Street forecasts. Shares in Comstock have approximately gained 29% since the beginning of the year. Now, beyond the immediate crisis, what has the deregulation of the Texas electrical grid meant for regular Texans not named Jerry Jones? Well, the major deregulation came in 2002, and here's how a 2014 study by the Texas Coalition for Affordable Power described it. They wrote, On January 1st, 2002, precisely at the stroke of midnight, Texas broke with its long tradition of regulating most electrical service. It was a colossal policy change. No longer would giant vertically integrated utilities maintain their monopoly grip on residential and business customers. No longer would Austin political appointees determine directly the price of air conditioning and lighting homes. Instead, new retail electric providers would vie for business in most parts of Texas. In theory, the free market and competition would keep a lid on rates. There would be more choices and better services. Well, how did that turn out? Well, according to the same study, not so well. They write, Texas, Texans in deregulated areas have consistently paid more for power than Texans outside of deregulation. 
All told, Texans living in deregulated areas would have saved more than $22 billion in lower residential electricity bills since 2002 had they paid the same average prices as Texans living outside deregulation. So Texans in a deregulated market are paying a premium vis-a-vis their comrades in more regulated areas. That's because deregulated markets need to allow for profits. Here's how a good piece by Mark Sumner broke it down. What ERCOT created was a system where electrical prices can float based on momentary spikes in demand. Prices can soar to several dollars per kilowatt hour when the grid is hard-pressed or literally be in negative territory when the demand fails to meet the base level of generation by the system. When consumers in Texas buy electricity, they don't see these wild swings in their bill. That's because they, as individual consumers, they don't really buy electricity. They buy a sort of electricity insurance, one in which providers contract to provide them power at a fixed or semi-fixed price. That price is, of course, designed to be well above the median cost of power on ERCOT's self-contained electricity market. Electricity insurance, like medical insurance, creates another level at which there's an opportunity for profit. It is, ladies and gentlemen, an absolutely insane system. You see, electrical power cannot be allowed to exist on an open market. It's something that everybody needs. You can't opt out of it and live a normal life in our society. Those things, the necessary ones, they absolutely need to be decommodified. And the thing is, we already have a model for what that would look like. Like many things in America, the answer lies by looking into the past, specifically the New Deal era and something called the Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA. These are the symbols of a nation's constructive energy. Douglas, Guntersville, Cherokee, Wilson, Pickwick Landing, Chickamauga, Hiawassee, Fontana, Hales Bar, Watts Bar, Fort Lauder, Wheeler, Appalachia, Norris. Built for and owned by the people of the United States. Man, those old New Deal propaganda reels are amazing. I encourage you to watch the whole thing. So the TVA was created in 1933, as the newsreel said, to harness the power of the nation's river for the benefit of the American people, not the profit of capitalists. And wouldn't you know, it's still kicking today, despite repeated efforts to privatize it, most notably from one Barack Obama. Obama's TVA privatization push was actually opposed and ultimately defeated by labor unions, most notably the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. Now, the TVA is a model that can be expanded on and replicated today. Friend of the show and husband to today's guest, Matt Brunig, has a proposal over at the People's Policy Project, which advocates for just that. Here's Matt on the TVA. Quote, the TVA, which was originally established during FDR's New Deal, is the largest public power company in the country. In the last fiscal year, it produced and sold 160 billion kilowatt hours of electricity, which generated $11.2 billion in revenue and $1.1 billion of profit. It currently operates coal-fired plants, natural gas plants, oil-fired plants, a diesel generator site, nuclear plants, hydroelectric plants, 15 solar energy sites, and one energy wind site. Around 54% of its current energy production comes from non-carbon sources, with the bulk of that coming from nuclear. 
Put simply, the TVA knows how to successfully produce large amounts of carbon-free electricity, so it should be up to the task of helping to decarbonize the electricity supply in its current service area and across the country. And the key to this is that a green TVA, much like the original TVA, will give workers a stake. The dam builders, 200,000 of them in all, 4,000 on this one project. Valley farmers and miners, mountaineers and city workers. To them, this was more than a job. They had a stake in what they were doing. They were building for themselves and for their children, for the future of the valley. Contrary to popular belief, after decades of propaganda, markets are actually inefficient. They're great at enriching capitalists, but not great at delivering social needs. Markets fail Texans, not wind turbines. To prevent a tragedy like this from happening again, we desperately need to move away from the vagaries of the market and towards a publicly owned and publicly controlled energy system. And that's the the main point that I wish was the point of discussion um, anytime the story is talked about in the press, because, uh, you know, it's turned into this war between renewable energies um, and fossil fuels, which that's a worthy discussion as well. Don't get me wrong. But really at the root of what's happening um, in Texas, as you clearly pointed out, is the deregulation, which yeah. is tied to this, you know, market-based uh, utility. And it's it's just absolutely dis- uh, disgusting and should not be privatized. There shouldn't be a profit motive. And look, the thing that, the thing that shouldn't shock me anymore. Um, but I guess I'm still naive enough to think that people have at least an ounce of shame is just how transparent people are about their profit motive, like to the point where they brag about how much money they're making as people are suffering. Right. And, and I just don't know how to get through to Texans who have bought into the idea that this is a system that works. Right. Because it's not like this is the first time they've experienced this. This has happened before. And somehow uh, the propaganda championing capitalism works. It just works. Um, And it's it's incredibly frustrating because this will happen over and over again. And it is because we have, uh, you know, energy companies that are willing to play offense immediately. I mean, it was a preemptive messaging campaign to attack the Green New Deal uh, and blame the Green New Deal or renewable energy for what Texans are experiencing right now. Um, You I I think that um, the left can maybe take a lesson from that, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 debate was mind-numbing because mostly because of the, that that Tucker Carlson and the sort of the unified front. I mean, governor the the Texas governor Abbott also said like where they blamed the Green New Deal, which obviously doesn't exist uh, in Texas on yeah. on the problem. Um, and you know, and then the sort of the, the response is like, no, actually, like the wind turbines was like a small percentage of the thing, and like, yeah, all that's true. It's, of course, it's true. But if we're going to decarbonize the American or the global energy system. And doing it and did it through this like for-profit, um, you know, mm-hmm. market-oriented approach, it would be a disaster. People would there's certain people would get rich off of it. We would decarbonize, but we would still it would still be an absolute disaster. People would be left without power. People would be kept right. in poverty. Things like that. Like the the whatever we do to decarbonize, it has to be pegged towards 
a, a moving away from markets for these kind of things. Like it's just it just they have to be publicly owned and publicly controlled. Like that's just it has yep. to be for the benefit of the people. It does not it cannot be for the benefit of the owners. Like that's just that that's the fundamental thing. What whatever the energy is, you know, and there's like there's very heated debates as to what 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 it should be. Like we should all agree that the energy should be owned and controlled by the people. <laughs> it's just like that's just that yes. has to be, you know, front and center of of any of this. And it and, and it's a way to frame these things in a, in a way that gives workers a stake and, and it, it gives them like, it's like, no, 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 this is, this is going to be good for everyone. I mean, so, so often the liberal impulse around environmentalism is like pushing the blame and the, and the costs on regular people, meaning like, Oh, yeah. take shorter showers or, you know, drive less or recycle. Don't use plastic straws. You, you know, you animal, um, and it's mm-hmm, like all, mm-hmm. none of that's going to work ever, 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 ever. It's never going to work. It's just never, ever, 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 ever going to work if it comes down to individual choices. It has to come from a collective ownership of the energy that we produce. Yep. And that yeah, will, you have to yeah. get rid of the. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, no go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, like, you absolutely have to get rid of the the profit motive, um, the the for-profit model. Because, I mean, and look, Texas, obviously, with what, what Texans are experiencing right now, um, is a prime example of how disastrous this is. But, I mean, we have privatized utility companies um, or utilities here in California as oh, well. Yeah. And, we have the same problem. And look, with yes, the blackouts we did. and exactly. the fires gonna... and stuff, yeah. Yes. So PG&E... Um, is a private company. And they decided that, hey, we got to maximize profits, cut our losses or, or cut our costs. And what they did was um, essentially avoid upgrading any of their equipment. And so during any weather event, like a little bit of wind, power lines would would come crashing down. And then they would lead to these massive wildfires that were nearly uncontrollable. People lost their houses. Um, I mean, the wildlife absolutely suffered as a result. And um, much like other private companies, when they F up, right, they, the government response is, well, privatize the gain, socialize the losses, because, mm-hmm. of course, PG&E faced so many lawsuits as a result of that. And Gavin Newsom came in and bailed them out to the tune of $26 billion. <laughs> so it's just it's amazing because, you know, they love to talk about this privatized model and how great it is. Uh, but whenever they're in any trouble, uh, they always turn to um, the taxpayer to bail them out. Always. Yeah. It's just yeah. absolutely terrible. And, and again, it's like if, if you're just trying to sort of always tinkering the financial incentives to encourage the better social outcomes, like things happen and it, it never works out in the way that you design it in the first place. Like, you know, like the 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 financial incentives were tinkered to like encourage wind turbine use. And there's a lot of there's a lot there was a big increase in wind, in wind turbine use, but they didn't include a financial incentive to winterize the wind turbines. Right. Like it's not like. You know, there's wind turbines in in Antarctica. You know, like there, there, the technology yeah. exists. You know, but it's just like there wasn't the the economic incentive because it was just an added cost. You know, and, and it's for the people in Texas building wind turbines to do that. You know, it's the kind of thing right. that a government has to be like, no, no, no you just you just got to do it because we have to prepare for this contingency, even though it's unlikely, even though it only happens once every decade or whatever. It's still 
you know, we can't we can't go for it. But like the profit calculation for for profit companies, like we'd rather like, you know, we'll we'll shut down during that historic winter storm that happens once a decade because this happened in 2011. Right. It's the it's the Mm -hmm. funny part about all this. Um, But we'll we'll just we'll just, you know, because we're going to maximize the profit in in those intervening years, you know, and that that calculation is baked in. So that's just it, it never works that way. Like you need you need the governments to be running these things. Like you need governments to be running um, the, the sort of democratically controlled governments to be running the things that people need, the things that people I mean, we need electricity, we need housing, we need healthcare, we need education. Like this is like privatizing all this stuff is a disaster. It's always been a disaster in every single yeah. sector. It's never worked in any single sector. And it makes us all miserable. Like, not yeah. only is it inefficient, not only does it um, leave us in the cold, literally, um, <laughs> but it also, I mean, when you think about it, just to be able to pay for these things, where we have to put our lives through this, like, miserable process of constantly working, constantly struggling, not being able to spend time with our loved ones, like, just being able to... Uh, provide ourselves with the bare necessities for survival under this privatized system, it's just, we have to go to pretty great lengths. And it's just, it's absolutely awful. Um, so who knows, maybe uh, maybe this will get uh, Texans to really rethink uh, the inefficiencies in their own system. But the blame game is currently playing out uh, in, in the news. We'll see how this all uh, ends. And yeah. we're still waiting on our guests. So, Nando, why don't we um, switch things around a little bit um, yeah. and talk about our salt segment first? Let's do it. Uh, yeah. So I I love this story. You're the one who brought it to my attention. Yes. Um, and there might be some hope for something that I was uh, really wishing for but didn't think was possible. <laughs> yeah. So – Joe Biden has chosen Neera Tanden, the former president for the Center of American Progress, as the head of the Office of Management and Budget. Now, she needs to get confirmed by the Senate, and uh, it looked like she was going to get confirmed easily. Republicans are totally against her. Liberal senators are, you know, likely going to vote in favor of her. Um, however, yesterday we got some big news, uh, and it was uh, tweeted about by Jeff Stein over at the Washington Post. Senator Joe Manchin cites <laughs> Neera Tandon's comments about both Senators Mitch McConnell and Bernie Sanders in announcing opposition to her nomination, says her statements have had a toxic and detrimental impact. Um, and he also followed that tweet up with this, and I, I happen to agree with him on this. He says, hard to see which Senate Republicans would save Tandon's nomination. Tandon has called Collins the worst on Twitter. By the way, she <laughs> is pretty bad. Uh, Collins and Murkowski are close. Romney talks a lot about bipartisanship. And we still don't know which way Sanders would vote. He hasn't said publicly. Mm. I'm, I suspect... I don't know. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I suspect he's going to vote to confirm Neera Tandon. I don't know. We'll see. It de- I think but, it depends I mean, if Manchin is mm-hmm. serious and, and if Manchin if Manchin breaks, it's done. It's the, 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 nothing matters, right? Like if Manchin breaks with the party and, and and votes to not confirm her, it doesn't matter what Bernie does or not. You know, at that point, he probably would be well served to to not vote for her either. But um yeah, I mean, it's just it's 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 hilarious, and it's something that you and I Anna, have talked about a lot on various shows about Mansion specifically, right? That Mansion mm-hmm. is in West Virginia. Donald Trump was won West Virginia by like seventy five billion points. 
you know, like it's 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 a very heavily anti-democratic party state. So Joe Manchin has to figure out ways to um, distance himself, at least in his image from the Democratic Party. Like, and I actually am sympathetic to that. Like, he needs to do that because if not, he'll lose. Like, it's just, that's just the reality of it. And if you look at Joe Manchin's voting record for all the sort of talk, like, he is a decently reliable Democratic vote, much like on the other side, Collins and Murkowski, who have this reputation of being these kind of like Mm -hmm. independents because of the same situation, just in the inverse, that they can't be seen as too reliably Republican. But if you look at their votes, they're actually pretty reliable Republicans. So, Manchin has to figure out ways to to do that. And this is like the perfect way to do it. Because who gives a shit about Neera Tandon? It's very unimportant. They're going to replace her with someone else. Right. Yeah, I mean, they might replace her with someone even worse, but I give, I do give a shit about Neera Tandon. It looks Neera like it's going to, it's going to be Gene but, Sperling, but who's fine, whatever. It's mm-hmm. like he's just a guy, you know. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm, I'm more open to that certainly. But, um, but like, I don't care about her mean tweets. I think that's like the, like the fact that they're focusing on that as opposed to her very clear conflicts of interest, like. The Center for American Progress was funded by like the worst of the worst. Like, yeah. I mean. She no. was against the Iran nuclear deal uh, yeah. because of Israel's uh, work with the Center for American Progress. She hosted Benjamin Netanyahu, okay, for a conversation to essentially, like, push back against the Iran nuclear deal. Like, she has too many conflicts of interest. Who gives a shit about her tweets? Who no, cares? Well, well, actually, actually, you know, so all that stuff mm-hmm. is true. She's awful, like, on the merits. You know, she, she and she outed, like, uh, you know, someone who uh, was sexually harassed in, within Canada. And like she's just like she's just awful. But I think okay, that's tweets, different. That's different. But the, but I think that the tweets do matter for the for what I'm going to explain mm-hmm. right now. I don't care what she said about Collins or Murkowski or even Bernie or or like. But Neera Tandon is her role in the system, right? Is to be the front line of attack against the left. You know, that's, that's just been yep. her role. That's been her role within the ecosystem of the Democratic Party establishment whatever you want to call it you know what you know what i'm talking about within that system corporate her her position on the field is the person who is on the first line against the left and the fact that she's gonna have to put her out there like a good little soldier and now it's like exactly (laughs) exactly so it's coming back to hunter you know that's 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 where the sweet karmic justice comes into play you know like, yeah. her job at the Office of Management and Budget would have been whatever. I mean, she sucks. Yes, she does suck. But, like, yes, like you said, they're going to they're gonna put in some other, just a guy. Who gives, who cares? It's, like, not going to make a huge material difference. But the fact that she's paying the price for the role that she played out on the front lines, just fighting with, like, you know, uh, at uh, Sanders bro uh, 4269, uh you know, at 3 a.m. on Twitter is just it's it's great. It's neat. We need we need that victory. We need that victory. No, I totally. I mean, look, I love this. I'm amused by it. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, like, in this discussion, you know, the thing that I wish were also part of what were what was concerning these senators yeah. is the fact that she has these conflicts of interest. And to be sure, she's not the only Biden nominee who has deep issues when it comes to um, ties to corporations, to foreign governments. Like, what? What are we yeah. doing? Right. And, you know, I wrote I wrote an op-ed about this for USA Today and like immediately you get the response of, oh, he's only been in office for this long. And of course, you know, you can't, but it's like, 
Okay, but here, the fact, can you read it? Like, these are the facts. These are people. I mean, we know that the revolving door of politics is um, an incredible corrupting force uh, when it comes to policy decisions. It's just, it's worked against the the American people. But God forbid you bring that up in the context of a democratic administration. Then it's unacceptable. Yeah. But hey, we'll have endless discussions and debates about the emoluments clause when it comes to Donald Trump. Conflicts of interest for Democratic appointees and, you know, administrations, that's okay. That's totally okay. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, um, I, mean, it, I did yeah, have some Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I did go have ahead. some responses or reactions to it oh, yeah. uh that let's I wanted to share with you. Uh so let's go to um, Lindy Lee's. Uh, she was a delegate for for Biden, and she believes that Neera Tandon committed the unforgivable crime of mean tweeting while female. <laughs> so ov- obviously, immediately, really this becomes like an identity issue. Yeah. yeah. Um, Elise Hogue writes, I'm appalled by Joe Manchin voting against Neera Tandon for OMB, a committed progressive? After he voted for Bill Barr and others, how about assessing her work competence and vision instead uh, of the tone of her tweets, stop sinking good women because they are outspoken. I mean, it's just a completely, first of all, I, I also don't agree with his votes on the people that were cited um, in that tweet. Um, you can be against uh, Manchin confirming uh, both parties, right? And and I am against uh, members of the Senate uh, voting to confirm uh, Neera Tandon. But this isn't about, this isn't discrimination. That's not what's happening no. here. And it cheapens actual discrimination to use these arguments to try to like provide cover for someone as awful as Neera Tandon, you know? No. And I mean, a a huge part of it is what I was discussing about Joe Manchin and his need to sort of do these performative things against the Democratic Party once in a while. The other thing that's really going on here that is a thing that is difficult to understand, I think, for a lot of people who haven't read a lot about how the Senate operates. The Senate's very strange. The Senate is is very different from the House of Representatives. There is it is really like a club, and they feel like they're part of a club. Like they they feel a lot of solidarity with each other. I mean, the clip that went viral uh, last week of that Republican guy Kennedy, the senator, saying like, "You called Bernie Sanders an ignorant slut." You know, like, and it's like, I'm sure Kennedy, who is like a right winger and probably thinks Bernie is like a crazy uh, Venezuelan dictator. Um, <laughs> like, it, I'm sure, but he does feel like, no, this is a senator. Like, we have to protect each other. We're both senators, you know? And like, that's what, that's yep. what's going, like, that's part of what's going it's on so here. It's so true. Like, if she's attacking it's senators. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, if Dude, she's attacking. Dude, they're so yeah. like. They're, they're a club. so protective of one another. Oh, yeah. It, it's Yeah, I hate it. I hate that it's a club. I mean, yeah. there's an endearing component to it because, like, in this world, it seems like there is no loyalty. Like, you know, you see people cutting each other up on Twitter all day long, and they agree on, like, 99.9% of things, right? Um, so it's kind of endearing and nice to see people who can, like, stick up for one another like that. But at the same time, we're talking about a governing body um, that's supposed to fight on behalf of the American people, not yeah. their colleagues in the Senate. You know, so that's why it's so um, disappointing at times. Yeah. And especially disappointing when when like Bernie's not going to get the knives out (laughs) against his colleagues, you know, and I think that's left um, much to be desired at times. But and Bernie's also just a nice guy. Yeah. 
No, and, and you know, I cited so. Matt Brunig uh, the, from the People's Policy Project, and Nira Tandem got him fired. You know, she she got him fired mm. from his job at Demos, and you know, I know that I know that it was a very very difficult thing for him. Um, and you know, he's since reinvented himself and d- done quite well. And the People's Policy Project is amazing, and it's better than anything Demos has ever done. But um, but you know, I, I got to feel like you know, Matt Brunig is one of ours. He's one of ours, and you know. We got mm-hmm. a, we got her back. We got her back, and, and it was and it was our good friend Joe Manchin. I mean, it's just it is kind of like it made me smile because everything about the story is so perfect. Mostly because like I think Nira Tandon was probably thinking like, oh, these people will have my back, and like it's gonna be so funny when they just like, no, we're just yeah, we're not gonna deal with this. Just you're out in the lurch, and we're just gonna put someone else in, you know. So yeah, um, feels good. Yeah. Um, so we're still waiting on Liz and, you know, there was a, an, an emergency. So, um, you know, we're obviously very understanding to that, but Kale, why don't we maybe take some super chat questions? Um, we'll give Liz a little, a little while yeah. longer and, you know, we might it, reschedule the interview. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, thank you to those who have been sending super chat questions. So I have a few that I can start with, but, yeah. uh, and we will do some now and maybe if, um, Post interview, we you know maybe there might be a moment to do more, but so keep sending questions in. Uh, let's see, which is the first one? What do I of all of our followers? Who do I privilege first? Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so there's I guess uh, so just tying immediately off of your segment, Nando. Um, mm-hmm. One of our viewers, Sue, was asking, do you think Texans uh, lived experience right now plus the Ted Cruz, Ted can Cruz fake will show people what repugnant, uh, what Republicans are all about or will the GOP windmill lies carry the day? Um, I guess just kind of following up where we left off a moment ago. I can't I, I can't predict the future anymore. Um, you know, predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I I don't know that this is going to spur like uh, a sort of liberal uprising in Texas or something like that. I mean, we've seen we've seen uh, we've seen tragedies like this. Just I mean, I don't know. Katrina, just to put an example, like it's not like Katrina, you know, Katrina was just a massive failure of Republican governance on just, like, every single level. Um, it's not like Louisiana is a solid red state now, or blue state now or anything like that. Um even though like everything from the failures all the way to top down from the Bush administration to, um, you know, to the Republicans in, in Louisiana. Um, it's not like Louisiana voted Democrat. They, they stayed. So, um, I, I don't know that this is in and of itself is going to do it. I mean, the only thing that can, the only thing that can change it is if, again, it's, it's up to us in a way, if we do, if we do something about it, we take advantage of the situation, but, but it, in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily lead to political change. Yeah, I agree. And I don't I don't think that this is a Democrat versus Republican issue, um, you know, because like with the example I cited in California with uh, Gavin Newsom um, bailing out PG&E, a private company that totally yeah. like destroyed the lives of Californians like the. I think the central thesis of what your decode was on, Nando, is, again, so important because this isn't about it's not even about environmental policy. The point of it is that a privatized model that has a profit motive is the worst model when it comes to, you know, 
these energy companies, you know, like yeah, yeah. be a public utility. Um, and yeah. unless uh, the politician in question is framing it that way, um, I don't think that you can expect any real change. Yeah. Right. And then middle-class liberals, middle-class conservatives turn everything into a culture war issue. So it's, yes. uh, you know, are you, uh, do you believe science? Do you not? Uh, do you, you know, the, all the right-wing memes about the, the windmills, like we were talking a moment ago about, um, it's, I mean, this is the, I think it's going to be incumbent upon the left to make the case for public ownership. And I think, and we should also, and, and I think this has already been said, I think to some extent, um, if I was listening correctly, although to be honest, I don't really know if I'm listening to the show ever, but, um, <laughs> no, but there You're was busy, a, like okay. pulling the, pulling the levers and twisting the wheels, <laughs> making sure that everything's running behind the scenes. He's just like, he's like the Charlie Chaplin in the, in the factory, just like, you know, <laughs> screwing bolts and you know, putting out fires. <laughs> You don't want to see what's in front of me right now. It is no, yeah, a complete mess. Like, yeah, it's like one um, of those like old like Soviet era panels with like just a bunch of colorful buttons. And just like bleep 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 bleep. Oh, I am I'm putting in every input, checking every output. We got perfect efficiency in this planned economy over here. Yeah. But um, no, but the thing though is that like on that point is that just the fact that something is publicly owned or to you know use kind of some older language nationalized that nationalized yeah uh just because it's nationalized doesn't mean that it's in the it's working actively in the interest of most people i mean this is the thing with like the bbc in the uk for instance like publicly owned news and yet it's almost entirely uh pro-business information um so that's you know it's it's not enough just to have something be publicly owned it also has to be publicly controlled and i think it's it's hard to say exactly what that's going to look like. Um, yeah, I think we we have some models from the from the past, like Nando pointed out with the TVA, uh, and we have a lot of history around the world, or, or, you know, in capitalist countries, developmentalist countries, and communist countries. I mean, you know, take what say what you will about the various political regimes, but we have actual evidence in these different parts of the world on how public ownership does in fact work. And uh, and so I think my guess is that a lot of public publicly owned energy, there probably will have to be what um, what Sam Gindin has called uh, like layers of planning that you'll have planning from top to bottom. But meaning it's there's, a you know, it's coordinated, it's planned, it's not left up to the market, left up to, you know, uh, the whims of, you know, is there enough input and, and output based on uh, demand or uh, based on supply? It's entirely based on what are the human needs that we have right now and how do we meet those needs? Uh, and my guess is that it's going to be uh, democratic in the sense that you'll have people representing, uh, you know, people that are deciding upon energy usage, uh, what kinds of energy, um, where that energy sits geographically. All those kinds of questions are handled um Either some of them probably will be democratically at the grassroots level, but I'm sure a lot of those questions will be siphoned up to a democratically elected chain of command. That uh, you know, so those layers yeah. of planning, like a um, like what are those cakes that have like ten layers? It's a, yeah, a layered cake. Yeah, it'd be it's like a layered cake. Um, yeah, but uh, good movie. Uh, I, I watched it recently. It was, it's a fun one. Layer cake. Um, next question. Next question. Um, 
So another one kind of jumping right off of what you were saying, Nando, actually. Um, but Lee writes uh, that she disagrees with you with regards to West Virginia, saying that most poor and working class people there do not vote. And an Atlanta-style organizing campaign may work to flip the state. Uh, I mean, m- most poor and working class people do not vote in West Virginia, just like they don't vote in Florida or California or New York or any- everywhere in the United States and everywhere really <laughs> in in the developed world at this point. Um, that's that's obviously true. I mean, I, I I don't I don't dispute that, and I don't think that West Virginia is like hopelessly reactionary by any straight stretch of the imagination. I just think that in the political terrain right now, the Democratic Party is toxic in West Virginia. The Democratic Party yeah. brand is toxic, which is increasingly what's happening in Florida, right? We saw in Florida, the Democrats in Florida are just like one of the worst state-run parties you can ever imagine. And you see things in Florida like Republicans winning everywhere while they vote for overwhelmingly for a $15 minimum wage. I mean, it's because yep. the Democratic Party brand in Florida is absolutely toxic and more so and more so and more so. Um so I, I, I don't I don't think that West Virginians are hopelessly reactionary. I just think they hate the Democrats. Um, you know, yeah, you're right about I that. I think the evidence because is overwhelmingly about that. Yeah, no, you're right about that. And because you can push Manchin, like let's say Manchin makes a political calculation or at least pretends that he made a political calculation um, indicating that like voting in favor of increasing the federal minimum wage would hurt him with his constituents in West Virginia. Um no, his constituents want a $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, and so there's actually been some pretty great organizing in West Virginia to basically call him out. And it's led to a lot of backlash. And he's he has softened his um, message in regard to coronavirus relief. So as long as you're campaigning on issues that help working people, um, I think that you can pressure him in the right direction, even in a red state like West Virginia. This is all really about branding. And yeah, the Democratic Party has become um, a toxic brand in places like West Virginia. You're right, Nando, in places like Florida, because increasingly um, they've moved away from talking about, you know, economic issues that actually matter to people's lives and instead have chosen to like focus on the culture wars that I think turn a lot of people off when they're, you know, about to get evicted and are hungry. Well, and the Democrats also were the ones that were proposing those economic policies that destroyed that state and other states. Yeah. NAFTA, the West Virginia voted Democrat up until like the 90s. And Joe Manchin is kind of like a holdover of that of that kind of thing. Like West Virginia was solidly Democrat for decades. I mean, West Virginia was the coal miners in West Virginia were the the tip of the spear in revitalizing the labor movement in the 1930s. I mean, it's like, it's not, these people are not hopelessly reactionary. It's just not true. You know, it's just that the Democrats failed them. They hate them. Um, the Republicans continue to fail them as well, but at least the Republicans brand to them is not as unpalatable than the Democrats who they just see as like, you know, sellouts who are full of shit. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, well, and, and the Democrats haven't ever really challenged the the power of corporations in the last 40, 50 years. They haven't challenged kind of the macro system. They haven't challenged globalization. Like there are big economic changes that that have happened over the last uh, few decades that have happened globally. Um, and in the U.S., you know, it's been deindustrialization that's happened uh, in Western Europe as well. Um, I mean, the thing is that it's it's not that, uh, you know, 
it's not that like if a Democrat or Republican was overseeing that thing, uh, you know, that, that transition, that, that change, um, there would have been much of a difference. It's, it's really, it's more that the Democrats never put up an actual fight against it. It's like, like these things happen because capitalism is a real abstract thing that actually does exist in the world and has dramatically changed how we live but we need to we on the left and what the labor movement historically has been has done although hasn't done as much lately is actually challenge that and say in that process the the owners aren't going to get it all that the workers have to be protected that that they need to have uh, greater ownership over the the changing economy and so that's where like if you have a plan that's built on public ownership a plan, a plan that's built on you control your lives, not just your personhood, which you should, of course, but then also your neighborhood, your communities, your towns, your businesses. That's going to be kind of the the bedrock of winning back those disaffected working class people who got fucked over over the last few decades, both because of the macro forces of capitalism and the the really cruel and unnecessary political decisions of politicians that uh, were basically just going along with whatever corporate America wanted. So, yeah. Um, got a few more questions on on uh, green energy, on a green new deal, on environmental okay. stuff. We're cool. having a real green episode. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Um, okay, so there's a question on. Uh, on green energy, what's your materialist take on dams, considering the environmental toll and disastrous effects on you tribal guys. communities? <laughs> <laughs> I just every time we take the questions, I feel like a student in like Soviet era Armenia, where like the teachers yeah. call on you in front of the whole class, and if you don't get what it right, what is the correct like, materialist take <laughs> on? Uh... <laughs> I just I, Nando, what go is the go correct go materialist go take hey. on on like open shirt collars? You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me and do that. I love that Kale no, no. picks those questions though, because those. No, no, no. Let's hear the guy out. Let's hear the question out. Let's see what he says. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I can maybe I'll maybe sum this one up and then hit it, and then we'll we'll keep going. But just the materialist take on dams, considering the environmental toll and the disastrous effects on tribal communities, mm-hmm. does hydroelectric power reflect metabolic rift? My sense is I, that I don't know what metabolic rift means, but. All good. Uh, yeah. The, <laughs> my my sense I mean, is that m- most of the that kind of energy is already somewhat tapped out when it comes to uh, dams. That actually, that's probably one of the enduring legacies of the New Deal, um, as we covered a moment ago. And uh, you know, so again, I think it's the Green New Deal. If it's if it's going to be viable in the future, it has to be some combination of a number of low carbon uh, energy options. So. Continuing hydroelectric, uh, expanding things like tidal, uh, solar, wind, and uh, some people on the left are not yet comfortable saying this, but nuclear. You got I don't know how you're going to get to the numbers you need without that as well. So it's going to be a combination yeah. of, of either low or no carbon options, and directly challenging both the uh, the um, oil companies, the coal companies, the natural gas companies. Uh, but also the actual, uh, like all the incentives for that to be the uh, like the low, low price option that's on the market right now. Um, yeah, 
No, I mean, I, I'm not, a, I'm not like, I'm by no means like an expert on energy policy. I just know that the principles that, that we, one should, you know, look at um, when looking at these things. And obviously we don't want to destroy native lands and sovereignty. We don't want to do that regardless of what we do. You know, we don't want to like, um, I think to the extent that that happens, I think it is usually a product of like capitalist pursuits of profit, you know, like what, what happened in Ecuador with Chevron and all that stuff, like where, you know, they're just an easy place to, to target essentially, because you can profit more off of it. Um, you know, to, to the, so the extent we, we do anything, whether it's hydroelectric or whether it's nuclear or whether it's whatever the, whatever the thing is, like we obviously have to not destroy <laughs> native lands in the process of, of doing, of doing any of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, so I think we just stick to like certain principles, um, and I think if we if we if we do, we'll be okay. Kale, before I forget, I do want you to send me material to read on nuclear energy because I don't know enough about it, um, and I know it's a controversial topic for some reason. Um, so I kind of want to understand why. Right. Uh, definitely don't go into it oh, now because of, yeah. because of the disasters that have happened. Yeah. I mean, there's been there's been you know Fukushima. Is that the only or... reason? Yeah. Well, and and, the, and how you get rid of the waste is also difficult. But mm -hmm. uh, um, but yeah, it is the it is a clean. It is the in terms of the clean energy. It is the one that provides the most energy. Right. If mm -hmm. that makes sense, you know, like. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's those reasons that Nando mentioned. But the the biggest challenge going forward, because as far as we understand, the current technology does have means, or they they are developing means to deal with waste. They are developing means to do with. Uh, safety of you know that if you have a an earthquake and a tsunami hits your your plant simultaneously which is what happened in fukushima um you know there isn't any kind of leak of of nuclear material which as far as i understand wasn't actually even what happened with fukushima that hardly anyone really i don't think anyone died directly because of nuclear uh radiation exposure but I'm sure someone in the comments is going to get real mad at me well, for that one. But even even I don't uh, know um, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, even totally. Chernobyl. I mean, uh, you know, like uh, the, the amount of people who died at Chernobyl um, due to the radiation uh, poisoning and things like that um, is lower than the number of people who die from like carbon uh, from carbon fa like power plants like every year, uh, something like crazy like that. But it's just like the, the nuclear meltdown is such a scary thought. Yeah that it's it's one of those like things where like it's, it's it really is like just like a terrifying i mean it, it, we you know there's three mile island in the united states in the 1970s like there is a certain fear that there is that this is like a thing that has to be dealt with extreme care <laughs> you know it's like mm -hmm. uh, um that there there is those risks but you know like i think like kale says like it it is the cleanest form to produce the most amount of power um so well, the thing you is, know, like, to the extent it, that you can improve the technology and, and and make it secure and get rid of the waste and all that stuff, you well, know, the, the last two, like it'll be in our future. The last two really quick points on this: the first is that any energy uh, source you choose requires production, and it will have some kind of waste. There's always what's what's understood kind of in, in more economic terms is like public bads like the fact that you are doing any kind of production means that there's going to be some kind of bad output like 
That's just how literally all production works, right? And so what you want to do, of course, is you want to minimize the amount of like uh, nuclear waste. There's models now considering um, recycling, basically reusing what it, what it outputs to then go back in as an input into nuclear plants. All of this is, you know, it's not worth going into at the moment. But the point is, is that even if you're building uh, solar panels, even if you're building wind turbines, even if you're, you know, any of these things, it necessarily means you're going to be transforming the earth. It means you're going to be, you know, digging out material to build these things. It means you're going to be stationing them up somewhere. That's an inevitable process in all of this. So, like, the fact that, you know, nuclear also has, like, it faces the same, like, uh, challenges that basically any other energy source faces just in a different way is something that, you know, we'll continue to to work on and develop. I think the more important thing is just the fact that it's incredibly expensive to build. And so uh, private investors, you know, they're not going to be, they're not racing into uh, building these things right now. Like it, the only time that we've ever had a nuclear build out was, uh, I believe it was 60s and 70s directly. Actually, a lot of it came in response to the oil crisis in the early 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. where they needed a different, more uh, sustainable uh, energy option. And so, again, the, the, the challenge is going to be, it has to be state-funded because uh, right now it's probably still not, like, a good market in, incentive. There's no good market incentives. It's not a good investment from the perspective of a business man, woman. And so, again, I, I think it's, you know, that's that's kind of the the... the the most important kind of hump that uh, that that is kind of in, in front of that uh, yeah project right now, I guess. Um, yeah. Still waiting on Liz Brunig. Um, I've yeah. emailed her. I don't know. Um, I think maybe she had a uh, an emergency and might not be able to make it. Yeah. Let's do one more super chat, maybe, and then uh, and then we'll decide from there. We'll if... reschedule her. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to make her life difficult by coming on the show. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. Um, I know I got I got the chat all all. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a a, a very uh, contentious debate right now over over nuclear. <laughs> sorry, oh, guys. Yeah. yeah, I knew that um, was gonna happen. Just for what it's worth, the left has like this much power, so like. We're not even matter. making these decisions right now. So, like, I can want it all I want, and it's not going to affect anything right now. So, um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, it's a question about the New York mayoral race. I don't know if it makes sense to comment on that at the moment. We'll probably get to I don't to know much about it. Yeah, I just know Andrew Yang's running, and he's running the strangest campaign I've ever seen in my life. But uh, <laughs> other than that. <laughs> other than- Who else is running, Kale? You're, you're a New Yorker. I've considered. I'm probably not going to throw my hat in the ring, though. Um, okay. It's. I had an exploratory campaign for a couple months, yeah. but uh, there was it's a not draft kale uh, grassroots uh, campaign on Twitter. Kind of like the. It was. It was all the old draft Warren uh, people. <laughs> were like, we liked Elizabeth Warren. Maybe Kale will do. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well. Uh, Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's do, um, 
another question from uh, there's a question from Electric uh, Miscellany who asks when you got when you get to have when you interact with uh, people from the mainstream mm-hmm. media, do you ever try to convince them to expose the negative role of capitalism <laughs> in so many stories, such as the Texas blackout? Uh, do you know or care? You'd be mo- you'd be better served trying to change the sky green than mm-hmm. than doing that. I mean, I, I mean, outside of like incredibly rare exceptions, where you you know have some sort of these people are there for that. It's like it's like a fish in water. They don't know that they're in water. Mm-hmm. It's like it's yeah. I mean, that's what Noam Chomsky talks about all the time. You know, it's yeah. not like it's not like these people are like they don't. It's not like they know how wrong they are. It's not like they know no. they live in the bubble that they live in. They they really genuinely believe the things they believe, um, and think that the like this is the greatest country in the world and capitalism is what makes this country the greatest country in the world. Like that's just, it's like one of those like givens in the bubble that they live in. They don't know they're in the bubble and they don't realize that it's just a given um, in their ideology without ever really being challenged. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, there's an old uh, little adage, I guess of uh, either, either it's extremely difficult or it's near impossible to convince someone to believe something that they're paid not to believe. So basically, I mean, we've covered this in the past before as well. You know, it's just the fact that media has to make a profit because it's a for profit, uh, uh, venture in a market. And so, you know, one, it's not super sexy to challenge. It's not. It's, wait, this, one, it's not like super. We like, make it sexy. We yeah, make we it make sexy, it, Kale. Yeah. Come on, what are you talking about? So maybe okay, maybe that's just like a, a limitation of their abilities. But the more important thing is <laughs> is the fact that like it's they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. Whether it's like the corporations themselves, whether it's uh, you know the fact that these people make incredible amounts of money whether it's the access that they're given from either mostly politicians, there's less corporate access in part because corporations do not want, (laughs) they don't want like media looking at them ever uh, if they can get away with it. So it's, (laughs) I mean, for the most part, I mean, well, there's, I mean, there's like tons of business channels. I mean, I love watching the CNBC. Whenever I do a a research segment for this show, I always look up CNBC first to see what they're saying. And it was like funny to see like, um, their take on the Texas thing was like they had on some guy who had like a solar energy company and he was like, this is great. We're going to make so much money, invest in my company, you know. <laughs> it's amazing. It's just so amazing. I know. Yeah. Uh, so There's good. gold. I, like if you if you had the time, like I feel like Media Matters doesn't ever focus on CNBC, but I feel like it's a gold mine. Like it's gold mine. Conversation gold mine. they have is they're so callous about everything because the whole yeah. purpose of that cable news channel is to just talk about profits. Like what's the most profitable company? What should you invest in? Which single stocks are the best? Like that's all it's about. It's amazing. So if you have like a disaster. I mean, it's the perfect. Perfect way to like reinforce what um, Naomi Klein talks about with disaster capitalism, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're craving. They're like, how do we make money off of this? (laughs) It's like, what's the best way to do it? You know, like, let's talk. (laughs) It's amazing. You know, I love it. But yeah, I mean, the mainstream media, the mainstream media has a structural problem. It's, 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 
for-profit news is in, like actually Branko Marcic, who like writes thirty thousand articles for Jacobin uh, every month. Somehow he has an article. His latest one is about this that that um, that for for-profit news is just an incompatible thing. It's like an oxymoron. Um, it's it's just you can never do it. You can never do it right. So. That was what my, um, my decode was on, on the day that you were out. Uh, like when you mentioned the fairness doctrine, I was like, I want to learn more. Like how exactly would the fairness doctrine, you know, work if you were to like modernize it and like implement it today? Um, and honestly, like I learned a lot from his writings because I didn't realize that the majority of people still get their news from television. And that's. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Big time. I mean, that's, that's I always talk about that. I mean, I think maybe it's because I used to work inside the belly of the beast of television news like i've peered inside the belly of the beast of like abc news and univision and like these i used to work for these these companies and um it's the the amount of power that they still have over the discourse is enormous compared to things like facebook which i think everyone's what are you guys laughing about (laughs) just a a comment that cracked me up but i don't know if we want (laughs) to say it (laughs) say it i'm gonna read it (laughs) It's this isn't a super chat, but it just made me laugh. Um, McCarley, Kale is super high. Have they talked about that? <laughs> Kale, are you are you high right now? Are you doing the show? I'm gonna tell Bosker. No, I'm not high. I uh, I'm just I'm always wiped out by the end of the show because I basically start producing this at like eight or uh, it depends, but like eight or nine in the morning, and then it's a marathon until we're done at four. Uh, basically, because we know. end at three, and then I have to do all the other stuff when we end, you know, after we end. So, yeah. Okay. One, I'm going to say one final thing, and then we should probably wrap up. Um, Kale like made the mistake of getting like super into our decodes today. So, like, with me and Nando, he's like, oh, by the way, not a big deal. Um, over the last few hours, I read this entire book and here are some excerpts that you should find a way to incorporate. And I was just like, uh, and it like, it, it threw me off, but in the best way, cause it gave me clarity in the end on like what, and more focus on what I wanted my segment to be about. Um, but you brought it upon yourself, Kale. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So this is, I'm going to peer, I'm gonna let the viewers peer behind the curtain. I wanted to do my segment this week on the Ecuadorian elections. That was my suggestion. Take, take it away. Segment. This is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to do that. I was like, oh, there's, there's elections in Ecuador. You know, people like when we cover foreign news because I think, you know, because you can't, I mean, this, the, the regular mainstream coverage of foreign news, you know, as bad as the domestic coverage is, like the foreign news coverage is just like even worse. Um, so I was going to do, and, you know, I had it like, I had it in my head, the structure, it was going to, he was like, you should do, the texas thing and i'm like dude everyone's talking about the texas thing like what can we add that's new i mean the no one's talking about the ecuador thing yeah, that we can provide a, a you know value for people's lives and they're like he's like no i'm the producer of this show you do what i say I know. Right? Kale, you do Kale's what i say time to time I mean, it's <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm not so, used to it to be honest like you know i hope you guys yeah i hope you guys liked the texas segment um and it, <laughs> if you didn't send your complaints to Kale Brooks. <laughs> well, the uh, the uh, the turned evil nuclear industry lobbyist Kale Brooks. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but if you do want to, but if you do want to learn about Ecuador, I did do a Jacobin talk uh, on what was it Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. It's on YouTube. 
yeah, yeah. Jacobin talk uh, with uh, Dennis Rogatjuk, who's the uh, one of the Latin American editors of Jacobin, and uh, uh, David, David Adler, Adler, who's yeah. from the Progressive International, to, talking about the Ecuadorian election. But yeah. All right. Um, well, so we, um, so again, as, as Anna mentioned a moment earlier, uh, Liz Brunig uh, was not able to join us. There was, I believe, a family emergency, and hopefully everything will be okay. Um, so I I think what we'll do is we'll just see if she can reschedule for uh, a week soon in the future. Um, yeah, I would love to and, talk to Liz. Uh, but any, yeah. any, maybe any final thoughts on what's going on with Cuomo right now, even though she's not with uh, us? Well... Yeah. Yes. Many thoughts. The Cuomo thing, the fact that Cuomo got an Emmy for his fucking press conferences, like, drives me insane. Maybe it's because I live in L.A. and I kind of work in the TV business. Um, but, like, the fact that they gave that guy an Emmy for his press conferences, like, will will be such an indictment to me on liberal culture um, in so many ways. Because Cuomo is a craven lunatic, um, just a disgusting monster. And his his leadership during the coronavirus pandemic has led to thousands and thousands of unnecessary deaths um and when i look at when when i get mad when i look at like you know conservatives who like you know again will snap to defend ted, ted cruz or whatever um you know liberals have no leg to stand on because they love yeah. Cuomo. they mm-hmm. fucking yeah. love that guy and that guy is a craven monster. And it's so obvious. Like, is he the worst? He might be the worst Democrat in America. I, I, so, he, so he might be. Let me give people details on like what's going on, because um, you might have missed the story. It, it's, it do, certainly doesn't get the same attention like uh, like the Ted Cruz story has gotten. Um, but uh, Cuomo has been embroiled in this giant controversy and scandal because much like uh, Republican governors in states like Florida, for instance, um, he and his team intentionally suppress data um, by as much as 50 percent regarding the number of nursing home deaths. And then after the media found out about it and he received a little bit of backlash, he proceeded to call uh, assemblymen and uh, threaten to destroy their political careers if they don't um, sufficiently defend him in the public. Uh, he's just he's like a mob boss. And, and yeah. the, reason, like, the only point that I want to make about Cuomo and the um, incredibly complimentary uh, media coverage he got early on in the pandemic is there was just this very clear effort to compare Trump to anyone else and just to just to highlight highlight how awful Trump is. And what ended up happening is Trump's terrible behavior and his unwillingness to take the pandemic seriously made the bad actions of other politicians pale in comparison. And like Trump didn't really seem to take it seriously, whereas Cuomo, um, you use those press conferences to like posture and make it appear Mm. as though he was like this hard worker who's like trying to take care of everyone. But at the same time, by the way, for anyone who actually cared to investigate it, and you didn't even have to do much, scratch the surface, homeboy's cutting Medicaid funding. Like, come on. So this, none of this should be surprising. And if you peer back a little bit, you know, if you, if you kind of step back a little bit, Andrew Cuomo's father was the governor of New York. Andrew Cuomo's brother is the primetime anchor on CNN. I know, Anna, you go on the show, so I don't, I don't want to besmirch too much. But no, like, don't worry about it. But, like, but Andrew Cuomo's brother is uh, CNN's main primetime anchor. They made like a whole 
thing about during the early days of the coronavirus where like he would go on his show and they'd be like, hey, bro, what's up? Like, and then he wrote a book talking about his own leadership during the coronavirus and made money off of it. Like, if this is like, this is like, you know, when we, when we look at like, when we, when, when liberals are like, oh, look at North Korea or something, this is some North Korea shit. Like, I'm sorry. Like, this is like state television protecting like a, fa- like a family member um, who is at the, this in like the seat of power of the richest, uh, like of the, of the, most important city in the country you know like it's it's just it's 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 such an indictment on every single liberal structure of power media everything about it is just so rotten that i I, like the cuomo thing drives me up the wall in a way that like you know the fact that everyone's like oh like he's so hot i want to fuck him i want to fuck him on his press conferences no one says cuomo sexual what and i've heard i've heard nando say it i've heard nando say it yeah. No, Anna, 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 Anna. There was a whole thing. Look up the hashtag on Twitter, Cuomo sexual, and then just to like despair. Yes, yes. Oh no! Oh my god! Yes. What? There's yeah. merch. There is merch. It's like Cuomo is my daddy. I want to fuck him. You know? Yes, you can buy the merch. <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. I can't believe that. That's amazing. Look up the hashtag Cuomo sexual. You'll. I'm not going despair. to. And I wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> I just, I don't want to lose faith in humanity. That kind of stuff makes me lose faith in humanity. But I mean, to me, that it's just so typical of these kinds of people. We're like, it's just jumping from like political savior complex, like from one to the next where like Fauci to this guy, you know, like they're just like insert name here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like, you know, no well, actual looking at the, the actual, you know, substance of any of these people. It you know, started with, just, it started with our first celebrity president, which was Barack Obama, not Donald Trump, because Obama was turned into a celebrity by being the first, whoa, 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 by being president. Ronald Reagan was our first celebrity president. Uh, I don't uh, remember. I, that's, that's too... You were too young. You know, you know, I was born in the Reagan era. <laughs> Listen, I, re- I remember... Ronald I remember Reagan was a Hollywood 11. actor. He was the, the president of the Screen Actors Guild. He was a union, you know, he was a union boss. Uh, okay, first, uh, first, like, first, like, social media, Instagram type president was Brock. And, like, and so that's where, or, I mean, one of the disgusting things with, like, Cuomo, like, what you're saying, it wasn't just, like, the, um, you know, it wasn't just, like, the, you know, uh, the brothers kind of, you know, palling around or palling around on CNN. It was like, uh, you know, mom likes me more. Like it was just like going back and forth over like it was, it was this almost, it was an effort to turn him into so much more of a human and not like the horrific figure that he truly is that killed 14,000 people in nursing homes between staff and patients. Like, and again, there was a study that came out, I believe it was a democracy now covered it where it was like, Assuming that, of course, in a global pandemic, there's going to be a, a bunch of people who are going to die. It was something like 40% of American deaths so far have been preventable. And 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 again, that's what we know. That's, you know, that's assuming yeah. that uh, that the numbers that we have are uh, honest or, or, or like reflective of what actually happened. But but Cuomo is is one of the worst in, in this because it, it's this continuation of the like you know, you want to like get to know the family. You want to get to know the person because like they're so sweet and nice and like, and they're there for you uh, in the same way that like the Obamas were. But I mean, Cuomo won't ever be able to do it like the Obamas did because he's just so much more repulsive. Uh, 
but it's it's that's like send him off either like just like a a totally innocent like reporter's question about like when schools can open and he just like flies off the handle he's just like the way he treats people in some of these um coronavirus press conferences like really reveals who he is which is why it was like annoying to see like all of the like media just like applauding him and like and by the way the those conversations you know the oh he's just like us those kinds of like interactions are meant to sell their authenticity like it's you know without actually being authentic like all of it is fake mm-hmm. all of Yes, but it's it's an effort to make them relatable, uh, to give people this like illusion of authenticity. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Kale, uh, I know you're too young to know this, but do you know of a guy named uh, John F. Kennedy? Would you consider him uh, a celebrity president? You know, Jackie O, Camelot, uh, fucking Marilyn uh, Monroe on the Oval, on the, you know Oval Office table. Do you know Do you know about uh, John F. Kennedy? I know I know that you're like uh, a young guy, but uh, have you heard of him? You know who he is? You know what I'm talking about? Might have read about him. Okay. Just a little <laughs> bit. Um, cool. But you know what I mean. You know what I mean. I know like, what you mean. I'm just There's a continuity time. that exists before Trump of, like, of the president being, like, the... And not just the president, but the entire family of the president. Of this, like... These are people that you feel so comfortable with. You're like, oh, this could uh, be my friends. Like Donald Glover just got a big deal at Amazon, and his first hire was Malia Obama for the writing room for the writers' room of his new show. Uh, Malia Obama. I would love to. I would love to see what her writing packet uh, was like, um, and it'd be hilarious if it was just like. It'd be hilarious if it was like if it was like actually funny, but. Uh, um, yeah, I wonder I if that so. has I mean, anything I... to do with the fact that her parents have like a a film company now, or like a, a like they're now producers for like Netflix series. Yeah. <laughs> Look, yeah. as the child of two Armenian immigrants, um, sometimes I wish my parents were the Obamas. Like I will say, it certainly opens up doors for you. Um, but anyway. Uh, all right, we should we should uh, wrap up, but we should definitely reach out to Liz and and hopefully we can get her booked on um, a future episode of Weekends. Um, Kale, thank you for all your hard work today. Um, you, you bust your ass for us. Uh, yes, we have incredibly complicated decode segments that you gotta um, not only help with, uh, but you know get all that uh, that video content for. So I can't imagine how uh, busy your Saturday mornings are. But um, everyone, until next week, we'll be. Yeah, show we do it all over again. Love. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to do this without him. Um, and so, yeah, that's our show for today, guys. Um, sorry about um, you know the interview today, but we will get that rescheduled for you. Hopefully, you enjoyed the longer um, super chat portion of the show. Um, Nando, any final words before we go? No, it's fun show. Definitely. All right. And if you um, want to help support our program and all the wonderful talks that you see over on the Jacobin channel, you can like uh, the channel or you can like this stream and share it. And also please subscribe not only to the YouTube channel, but of course uh, to Jacobin's magazine. Um, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for your support. And we'll see you guys next weekend. 